Good evening. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Nicola Mackay-Sim and I'm the Acting Senior Curator of the Pictures and Manuscripts branch. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank, my, and, I thank and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. For caring for this land, we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted to uh, look into a sea of happy and expectant faces this evening. We were really pleased that so many of you could join us to hear Michael Lunig's, about Michael Lunig's latest publication, Ducks for Dark Times. Michael has been a very special friend and visitor to the National Library for many years now. In fact, I recall in 1997, some of you may have been here, for the library's production of um, the publication, a celebration of Michael's um, work. And the event and subsequent book signing was uh, a great lesson for us in how to manage queues that wrap around the building. <laughs> it was a good precursor for the uh, Blockbuster International Treasures exhibition a couple of years later. More recently, Michael has participated with the National Library during the Enlightened Festival, where he explored the fascination of the night sky with none other than Nobel Prize laureate and astrophysicist Professor Brian Schmidt. <coughs> the library hosted the 2013 launch of his publication, Holy Fool, and again in 2015 to discuss the wayward lunic cartoons that wandered off. And last year, the library happily welcomed the arrival to the pictures collection uh, of 70 of Michael's most iconic drawings made between 1974 and 2013. Joining Michael this evening is Kim Mahood. Kim is an award-winning Australian writer and artist. Her memoir published in 2000, Craft for a Dry Lake, won the New South Wales Premier's Award for Nonfiction and the Age Book of the Year for Nonfiction. Her most recent work, Position Doubtful, was shortlisted for the 2017 Victorian Premier's Award for Nonfiction and the 2017 Australian Book Industry Award for the Small Publishers Adult Book of the Year. Please join me in welcoming Michael Lunig and Kim Mahood. Thank you. Um, I first want to say, am I audible? Can you hear me? Oh, thank you. I have, I'm, conf I'm confident now. I just need to know I'm not talking to myself. Okay. Kim, what, how, how would we start to talk? Well, um, <laughs> I did say to Michael earlier I was a little daunted. Um, it's uh, not... I haven't actually been on uh, stage with a sort of living national treasure before um, and probably won't be again. So, uh, but uh, we very quickly launched into um, a conversation about all sorts of things which I hope we can pick up sort yeah. of where we left off. Yeah. Um, but I did want to, um, I, I did my research, I looked up your website, um, did the things we do now, and um, I noticed you've got a quote there by D.W. Winnicott, yes. who is an old sort of hero of mine oh, from way so. back. Yeah. Um, and I was going to read the quote and get you to speak to it a bit because yeah. um, being on stage as we are at the moment is, is sort of one of those dilemmas you, we deal with it. So, uh, in the artist of all kinds, we can detect an inherent dilemma which belongs to the coexistence of two trends, the urgent need to communicate and the still more urgent need not to be found. Um, and I just wondered about how, how you've balanced that for 50 years, essentially, of communicating mm. and at the same time um, trying not to be found. Mm. Um. Yeah, it's a very profound quote that, um, and before I say anything further, I, I, I forgot to say, um, I, I appreciate you being here, you know, and all the audience, and I, I just do hope it's worth your while. I always, I, no, I, I, I know it means a lot to come out at a time when you otherwise would be home enjoying your dinner, perhaps, but let this be a meal. Now, back to Winnicott. Um, Winnicott, of course, I don't know whether familiar with Winnicott, who was a, a marvellous kind of paediatrician and later a psychoanalyst who's 
major concern was early childhood development and the relationship between the mother and the infant, I think, mm. would be the way of this. And he, he made huge contributions in looking at um, the mother-child relationship and how the very early baby develops and what is happening mm. in that early time. And I, I think, um, Kim, that he... He had a lot of thoughts about uh, the idea of what is the healthy individual yeah, yeah. or what is a life, a full life, and you know what maturing into some full, real, right and true life. Uh, it, it's hard to encapsulate, but... Well, the notion of the good enough was one of the things he came up with, as opposed to famous. perfection, excellence and so yes, on. Yes, the, yeah. the good enough mother mm, mm, rather mm. than the excellent mother, and he was yeah. famous for that. He used to broadcast on the BBC. He was a great believer in talking to ordinary people, and he rejected jargon, even though he was a brilliant sort of researcher and he's a gifted man, and he was a fan of the Beatles too, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so he, he had this thing that he said, spoke a lot about the origins of creativity, etc. And he did say this thing about he regarded the artist as a sort of there was some achievement, as he would say, of of wholeness and some he had admiration for the artists. And um, as an archetype, I suppose, or as a psychological archetype, but yeah, but this thing of to to communicate this impulse, mm. this need which is so fundamental and central uh, in all of us to some degree. We're here because I presume this is about communication and this rich uh, thing going on between us, and it's a bit one way at this moment, obviously, <laughs> but one feels the presence of an audience. It's a very tangible thing, what, I f what one can feel. And so, yes, to be here, and public, and speaking uh, from a position of deep privacy somewhere, and the deeply personal, and what is idiosyncratic and peculiar in me, in the hope, I think, of blessing the same thing in each of you, and valuing, and sort of speaking for that peculiar self, you know, this authenticity, I suppose. So. I think that the desire never to be found is another way of saying desire to preserve that really sacred self and yet the paradox of wanting to be uh, a, uh, a citizen, if you like, and in, in a world and responsible for each other and caring for each other and yet, you know, to have... On, that's in one hand, and on the other hand, to be profoundly, deeply personal and sort of almost alone. Well, I wonder whether, in a way, you hide in plain sight in the characters of Vasco Pajama and uh, Mr Curley and, you know, who, who reveal their sort of preoccupations, but in their way are these kind of um, quite private, secretive characters who <coughs> wander through the pages of your notebooks and yes. out into the world for us? Well, um, I think their privacy, if that's what you mean, the kind of, is their peculiarity. Mm. Now, look at a child. Look at a, a young child. They're very peculiar, <laughs> uh, beautifully peculiar. If you let them be, they will... Before they go to school, they will be just delightfully peculiar, and I... I think it's the most spiritual, one of the most spiritual times of life, and it's it's also very creative in 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 that what Winnicott would say a good enough start. You know, if you're fortunate, if parents are reasonable, and there's a bit of home and security, and it's there's not that's not the case for a lot, as we know. But that a child is very peculiar, and 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 it has this little dream world and it's fantasy and it believes in the pixies and the fairies as i still do <laughs> in a in a way uh, uh, and and so they're unperturbed by science and all that it's they have their own science and their own knowing and their own relationship with the spiritual world and i think it's we would call this innocence 
we would call this innocence. And that's not a dismissive thing. I think that innocence is at the very, is a little sort of like, it's, it's so precious and so powerful that it can persist right through our life, sometimes hidden away, and I call this mature innocence, our capacity to have our access to our innocence in maturity. And so I think that innocence does is that bit that doesn't want to be found or exposed too hard to in a hard and difficult world, which can be abrasive and not and dismissive of these things. Of, of that dimension. And yet, from that dimension in us all comes our creativity, I think, our, and our, our capacity for love. And that's some, something that, um, I mean, you have been working in the, this field for such a long time now, but it must have been quite extraordinary as a young man to end up working in the newspaper game. And, um, I mean, how did you <laughs> manage to preserve that sort of innocence? Back then, was it just accident? Was it? Luck? How did I preserve that <laughs> innocence? Um, in the newspaper. Well, it was hard, harder <laughs> compared to working in the slaughter yards where I worked previously <laughs> to working newspapers, <laughs> because at least the abattoirs was about life and death, and it was mm -hmm. extremely uh, shocking and sad and powerful atmosphere, and that brings you to life too. Mm. I mean, I've often said if, if working in an abattoir brutalises some, it deeply sensitises mm. others, because mm. it's life and death. Uh, but, so you go into newspapers and journalism, and I believe in journalism, and I believe in the media, or its, its possibilities as a democratic <laughs> kind of, you know, as a democratic important uh, an important part of democratic society. Uh, you go into a world, I think, I didn't go to university, but for those of you who did, and I'm sure there's a lot, you start to, people are very clever, you know, it's very tricky and clever and it's very cerebral and it, it's, um, it, it's, it can be difficult and there's a lot of, there's a lot of tricks going on and a lot in, the, in newspapers of ego and ambition and competition and um, so that was difficult because I was not born to it. I didn't have that in my background so I, I, uh, I had to stumble. But a cartoonist is allowed to be the village idiot. <laughs> and <laughs> in a sense, and I say that with some reverence for the yeah, idea yeah, of the yeah, village yeah, idiot, yeah, um, yeah. that, that, that you are granted a freedom to be an innocent and a bit of a fool, and you don't, you know, all the journalists are in the main game. You know, like the main game is here in Canberra, perhaps, at the Parliament House. And, and that's what's important in the male world of strutting about, and we really know what's going on, but you, you, and I pat you on the head a bit, and say, you know, when you're 24 and say, you just keep drawing your ducks, you know. You, <laughs> you, you don't need to worry about all these important things. And, and so it's not so difficult to retain your innocence. You say, all right, if that's what they want me to do, I'll draw ducks. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, well, I was a duck out of water, basically. <laughs> and, um, and that's probably, I think, one of the reasons that people do respond so much to to your work. Um, I've written down here that um, uh, you represent a sort of baffled everyman um, <laughs> with, a, with a, occasionally accompanied by a direction-finding duck. And, and I'm kind of curious about the duck because, you know, this is a book that says ducks for dark times, but anyone who buys it expecting it to be lo lots and lots of cartoons about ducks, there's very few ducks in it. Mm. Um, there are a few um, and they're particularly... <laughs> Vasco Pajama has the direction finding duck. Mm. And I'm sort of wondering what, what that duck represents. Well, you see, the duck originated in my work, in my cartoon work, in a serious page of the newspaper where it's the discussion of politics and you know, civic affairs. I put a duck in there once. Uh, in desperation, and cartoonists spend a lot of time in desperation with the clock ticking. Uh, and you know, the reason is, Kim, that 
you put things in drawings or in paintings, as you know, simply because you like them. Mm. And, mm. and they don't have to have a, a kind of a, a calculated meaning. There's an impulse to say, look, what? there's something missing in this drawing. In this newspaper, there's something missing. <laughs> Uh, what can it be? What can I can? What can I contribute that is missing in all these football players and politicians <laughs> and criminals and etc. And it's like a duck. <laughs> and honestly, I, I swear this is true. It is. It's like almost the imagination just wants to escape from the oppressive nature of all this brainy stuff going on and all mm -hmm. this uh, tangle of power and ambition and and it's like a retreat or a regression back to innocence you know because who can argue with the duck <laughs> and and who whoever says a bad word about a duck <laughs> i i don't know and similar with a teapot who, who <laughs> a teapot you can't argue it is a good thing. And, and so, yeah, it's a cheeky act of creativity. You, you, it shouldn't be there on the paper uh, with a, the serious letters there and the editorial here about the budget and, you know, all this. And you'd say, no, this is silly. I, it's important, <laughs> but I want to put a little duck in there. So, is it impulse? And it's a mm. cheeky impulse. I think Winnicott would love mm, the idea mm, of mm. that impulse, that little... Um, thing from within, yeah. Yeah. which is essentially well-meaning. It's not a nasty thing to put in to a paper. <laughs> and and, and it's, a, it's a healing thing, you, you think. Mm. But you've obviously have a hierarchy of birds in the sense that, I mean, the rooster got a really bad rap a few <laughs> years ago in your yeah. bag of roosters. Um, oh, the rooster, the rooster was yeah. a sort of oh, scapegoat, the, rooster, wasn't yeah, it? the poor rooster, yeah. you know. <laughs> The rooster struts about and crows and all the hens, oh, there he goes again, and, uh, et cetera. And I, they don't have a good reputation, the rooster. Um, uh, so, but I feel a bit sorry for them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. They certainly got a hammering in the bag full of roosters flogging yeah. across the paddocks and so Yeah, they're, they're yeah. just one of the birds. They're one of, yeah. well, there's a lot of males are like roosters and a lot of females <laughs> are increasingly like roosters too, <laughs> I might say. <laughs> I, and once again, you see my natural impulse to wander into dangerous territory. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's reel you back from that and um, you've described what you do as inventive playfulness. Yeah. And you know, but there must be times when it's difficult to be inventive or playful. You know, what happens then? Does that sort of overcome you? And what do you do? When well, when you run out of that mm. capacity mm. for spontaneity mm. and invention, mm. and mm. Um, I don't know, I'm still looking <laughs> for the answer. <laughs> but uh, I, I think you have to calm yourself and regress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 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 don't try and compete with the world and don't try and be brilliant. Uh, d don't try to do uh, excellence. Uh, I think there's been too much emphasis on excellence. I think excellence is achieved naturally. You don't have to encourage it. It, it has its own life and you, it's okay. Uh, I, I think a lot of people live in fear that they're not good enough or we, you know, they've got to keep up with this intensity of mm. you know, being outstanding and award-winning. I detest the world of <laughs> award-winning. I, I can't... I, God help me if ever I win an award. And, <laughs> and, or if, if ever I enter an award. I, I, I don't do it. And, um, and so one is trying to alleviate this tension all the time. You think, what good can you do as a cartoonist? What good, if you have a public voice, what, how can it help? I think that was just an old impulse, and I think we, most of us know of this. How, what use can we be? Because I think if we help, or think we are helping, life has a different meaning then, if we attend to some... You look at people, if there's, a, if there's a, an accident or a disaster, you see people just rush to help quite often and they find qualities within themselves because life suddenly takes on great meaning and so I, I think 
this is universal and it's eternal in the human spirit, I think. Strangely, to say in these what would appear to be selfish, self-serving times and grasp for power and luxury and dominance and importance and fame and prestige, etc. We live in these sort of uh, qualities now. So, and it gets more and more selfish and probably we get more and more ashamed of it deep down. So, what does one do to help? And what can a cartoon do to help? And I, I think what I came to, I didn't want to be... I gradually didn't want to be into this clever cartooning where you mock someone or be the mm. clever dick who sort of see, you know, nails it. And I don't like nailing it. I like to pull the nails out and let it open up. <laughs> and I think um, that's been an impulse and I think that is a help because that blesses the idea that we, we can just let go and open up and... And so I thought, maybe I can confess my sins, so to speak. <laughs> you know, say, I too am a vulnerable human. I too am sad about life. I too am happy about small things. And I, I think that's not the traditional role of a cartoonist, some would say. But the editors didn't stop me. They just let me keep doing that sort of thing. And I think I felt I was trying to bless these qualities which make us human, I think. There's, um, I think, that, uh, when I opened this book and, you know, it's got the sort of the subtleties and the humour and the occasional belly laughs and so on, but in talking about nailing it or not, or by pulling the nails out, mm. I think that you do sometimes do that. And I'm actually going to read a cartoon. It's such a cracker. Um, <laughs> and it does so many things simultaneously. Um, it's a guy's, you know, gone to see his doctor he says, help me, doctor, I'm having these episodes of compassion. <laughs> and the doctor says, a, a little bit won't hurt. No, this is serious. It's full-blown. It's spilling out all over the place. You mean it's indiscriminate compassion? Yes, I'm feeling sympathy and sadness for humans, regardless of their race, religion, nationality, <laughs> politics. Oh, dear, have you tried xenophobia, the old traditional remedy? <laughs> it doesn't work. I just, don't have, I, just don't, I just have to face the fact that I feel sorry for everyone. You may have been abused as a child. Too much love and understanding, perhaps. <laughs> and I just think that, I mean, it, it's, it speaks to what's happening here in Australia in politics, you know. Um, yeah. and, and, but at the same time, it also, you know, has a nice little poke at, you know, the um, yeah. over, over psychologising and, you yeah. know, all of that. So, yes, I mean, yes, yes. it just does so many things. And I think this is why you are still... You, you, you speak sort of beyond the ordinary political cartoon in doing oh, something yeah, like that. Th thank you, Kim. But, yeah, so if I, if I go back and say, now, what, what was I doing when, mm. I wrote, when I did that? I was probably lost mm. and at the desk and there was a deadline coming and, <laughs> and I'd read all the news, you see. <laughs> I'd read the news, yeah, and I, it's yeah, my yeah, terrible yeah, duty yeah. to read the news every day. And then, um, <laughs> yeah. and I'd read it, and I'd thought about it, and and the more I read it, the more I digested it, and moved away from it, and moved back to this regressive position of not going up and high, but going down and more become more primal. And then, then you get to the emotions when you mm. do that. They said, "What am I feeling about the world now?" And I said, "That's." It's unbearably uh, tragic at the moment, th this moment I'm in. This is what I would have been thinking. And that would have matched my feeling of despair because the deadline's coming, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're really raw to your feelings and to the world. And, and, and then it, I don't know the news events that preceded that, but it would have been something about that, that there was a great sadness about what was happening everywhere and um, maybe it was a time of the of some particular war the, you know the presence of wars and human conflict that we've been exposed to I find grueling and um, and yet you know by processing it in that particular way out mm. emerges this 
this incredibly funny and touching <laughs> sort of um, little tale that we, again, all respond to because I think a lot of us feel exactly that. It's you know? a fine line between <laughs> making a joke mm. about something which kind of dismisses us and making a little humour about it which opens us to it. And it's a sort of a form of poetry, perhaps, to um, open us. Uh, and and humour is a, a way, or that this subtle humour that people are very good at amongst themselves and in their, around their kitchen table and um, in their conversations, that wry comment which is bittersweet or... Uh, humans do it very well. The, the, the professional comedians don't do it nearly as well as ordinary people trying to make sense of life because it is bittersweet. And so I have to come back to being a human and not mm -hmm. a professional mm -hmm. when I'm working like that. And I have to dare to uh, sort of put my vulnerable humanity on the page because I think the best cartoons for me are when I've been very vulnerable and uncertain of what I'm doing. I'm saying, this isn't a punchline, this isn't a cartoon, this is me being corny. That's what I'll say. I'll whip, off, you know, whip myself. I'm being corny. And um, I'm not making a witty mm. joke. But time sorts mm. them out and sometimes I see the value of it. Sometimes, yeah. like that one you read out, I thought, oh yeah, I see what I was trying <laughs> to say. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a primal moment when you make yeah. art or a, mm. uh, it's a primal thing. One has to come, go down rather than up. Mm. So given you've been doing it for a very long time now um, and commenting on Australian society in the process, mm. has, have you noticed, I mean, has your process changed at all? And also what have you observed in Australian culture that, the most striking changes mm. or not? Oh, anyone who grows old laments <laughs> a bit about what is lost, seems lost in their culture and in their society, I think. Uh, you can't help it mm. and I, there's a lot of lament uh, in me, the, the Australia I grew up in and the interpersonal, the connections between people um, the old, more, the humbler, more ordinary world I knew um, uh, it, it is still a lovely memory and I, every time I see it, I feel it's disappearing and there's this far, it's got faster and faster and more intense and desperate and anxious. I, I mean... To make these generalisations could be very wrong. I don't know, but so, some days it seems a lot harder now. Life is a little is harder in in the big cities. It is, and um, so uh, this speed thing and this noise of life. I mean, when I was a boy, I didn't hear much noise going on. Uh, there was the sound of a ship's whistle somewhere or the factory whistles and the odd car would pass by. <laughs> and um, and we, oh, well, I, I grew up to the sound of explosions from the nearby quarry and machine guns from the <laughs> nearby, nearby ammunition factory where they would test the bullets, but I thought that was normal. <laughs> but, but you see, the sound, the tone, you'd hear, you'd walk down the street and hear a woman singing a song as she hung out the washing on the line. That was amazing, a song being sung, a cappella. Beautiful old sentimental song, or uh, the rubbish man whistling a tune. <laughs> you can't hear it anymore. And this uh, is this is in Melbourne, where th you. This was in the western industrial yeah. suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked as a paper boy from a very young age. I got up early with my father. He's going off to the meatworks, and I'd go off and sell papers at the. I've been in newspapers a long time. <laughs> um, I'd go off to the factory gates and sell papers to the. You know, the workers, yeah. and um, it, it was, yeah, a working class. Every factories, people going into work, uh, industrial society, and uh, it, was, it was a different Australia. People weren't so clever. We didn't have art <laughs> back then. There was no art galleries that I knew of, or art 
arts festivals or music festivals. So it was more make do and, um, but, and probably very bigoted. <laughs> too, <laughs> amidst all the kindness of t as well. Very funny paradox. And I would go off to Sunday school and sing little hymns about mercy and forgiveness yeah. and, you know, all these lovely ideas. And and um, and, and it's all, so, all sort of seems to be gone. I, I don't know. And then there was no television. Yeah. There was no television. So now I'm just sitting here reminiscing, aren't I? <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I was going to say, I mean, I don't know Melbourne really, but I have a, some friends who grew up there and they do seem to be obsessed with football. Oh, and you don't, don't seem to share me. that. I, I, there are some serious cracks at sport in this. Um, and I, was, I thought, no, not all Melburnians are nothing well, about no, football. No, they're not. Look, uh, if people enjoy their football, that's all right. But I, I also remember when football used to be on the back page of the newspaper. It's not like that anymore. <laughs> it's on every page of the newspaper. It's on, certainly on the front page. Now, it's just become a different game, obviously. I live near the Footscray football ground. I used to go to training nights and get all the autographs of the, of the um, players. Uh, and then in 1954, I saw Footscray win its first premiership. And I, I, as I've often said before, the experience was so satisfying, I never had to go back to a football <laughs> match ever again. <laughs> now, I think it brings... I, I don't think it's the, the happiest part of Australia. or the, it's, I'm not <laughs> proud of what footy has done to our nation and the, and the sort of money involved and the, the sort of madness and the violence. I think, you know, it, it really... And it, it sort of exemplifies the split society, our tribe against your tribe. You know, them and us. We're good, we win, you're bad, you lose. I know that's being too earnest about it, but it still is a little metaphor, or a big metaphor, for the way our politics goes. It's the way we, um, international politics goes. The wars we've been involved in. It's those other people. And, and uh, I think footy is a kind of a model of that in a way. I, 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 this makes me sound very earnest and <laughs> pious, but uh, I don't like it. And, and it's so violent. It really is. And people pretend that it shouldn't be violent, but they kind of love it. And you see a violent incident. You, you're standing in the fish and chip shop where they've always got a footy, you know, a, a match on up on the screen. And there's a, a violent incident. And... People, you know, are so horrified that it has to be played in slow motion again and again. <laughs> and you think there's a lot of sadism going on in this violence. There's a lot of rejection. And same it was, I felt, at the time of the Iraq invasion, that how does a nation go to war unless there's a sufficient body of hatred in that nation, in those good people, my Australian good people, you know, and... Sort of, I know a lot of people protested, a lot of people, but somehow there's a lot of people who said, yep, it must be done, knowing full well that a lot of people would die and be maimed and traumatised for generations. How, I thought, how can this be? How can we do this? And if you say, oh, there's a residual sadism in ordinary people, they say, oh, this is ridiculous. Of course there's not. We're civilised. They say, no, I'm interested in the primal elements that still reside in the human heart, hidden and tucked away and sm smoothed over. And so it's this thing of, you know, we are good, they are bad. I've always had trouble. And I think that lies at the heart of a lot of cartooning, mm. that let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's open this thing up. Are, are we really the decent society we think we are? Then why this inequality, which is getting crueler and crueler? And yeah, these are the cart this is the cartoonist speaking, you know, the social justice person. And what is my part in that? We're all caught up in it. It's what do you do about it, etc. And is our politics addressing it? Etc. So there are big questions and complex questions, but I, I'm not a very good. I'm not very good on Anzac Day or on Australia Day. Um, I I'm not particularly uh, join in, even though I feel a deep 
respond to this mm. whole country and the culture and the land and you know I, 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 I suppose I love it in my way and care for it but I'm not proud of our our this patriotism and stuff that is whipped up it wasn't the patriotism that I learned about that was what the Americans did we said back in the 50s or the they say, oh, Americans, they're always bragging and they're all full of themselves and they're... Uh, 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 but we don't do that. And that's what we used to say. Mm. Oh, I don't know, that's what the working class, I heard, say. But now it's different, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall any great nationalism when I was growing up either, no. you know, and, and it seems to me that you can be an Australian and really, you know, deeply attached to this country without, you know... Um, being nationalistic or jingoistic or yeah. wanting to watch football or, you know, there's, yeah. there's a whole lot of things that... Um, and I think may maybe that should bring us to... Um, you talked on radio quite recently about um, your experience of going up to um, Lockhart River and mm. encountering uh, the sort of the old girls, as you call them, the Aboriginal women and, mm. and the painters. and. Uh, and you seem to have sort of observed something there that was very reassuring to yeah. you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The time I've spent uh, amongst Indigenous community, in Indigenous communities, it's my good fortune to, be, to have found myself in, had opportunity to spend time in communities in the centre mm. and up top end there. Uh, um, uh, yes, I suppose it's undeniable that this great struggle goes on for what has happened to these people and this great sorrow and suffering remains and continues and complicates and, and um, I, I don't know, it's just this thing of... That interests me. I suppose human suffering, like Winnicott, would be interested in what, what is behind this. How did it get like this? Um, and it's an interest of mine. People say, oh, you're too negative. You're looking at... Be happy. Come on, be happy. I say, yeah, it's all right. I can be happy. I, I'm perfectly capable. But I'm curious about the, the human heart and the psyche and wh why we suffer emotionally and why people find themselves in tragic situations and doing things they regret and caught up in events. And you go into an indigenous community and there's a lot of evidence of people, you know, their children have committed suicide or there's their children are in jail, etc., etc. There's all those well-known problems. And yet, in spite yeah. of this, there's a, there's a sort of vitality in the face of great sad history and suffering and there's this kind of truth that's coming through all the time and warmth and care and frankness and truth speaking and I, I, I observed a lot of this and I, I, I recall in Lockhart River because I had a good vehicle, it, it was so-called dry community, no alcohol, but there was a, what was called a canteen on the outskirts and it was open for a couple of hours a night and you could buy a couple of cans of beer. And the old girls, as they called themselves, these are the old women who used to come to the art centre as a bit of a refuge for cups of tea and painting. Uh, they'd say, oh, Michael, you've got a car, you take us to the, um, the canteen. And I'd say, oh, all right. You know, and so you'd pick up this one and that one there and that one there and you'd have a big load of the old girls and get to the canteen. They all pile out. I'd say, come and have a drink. I'd say, no, no, because I've been warned. Don't go in there. <laughs> and so the next night, this would continue until about the third night. They said, Michael, come and have a drink. And I'd say, all right. So I go in and then there you start, you know, and there you end up sitting on the concrete floor because there's no chairs. And the old girls would all have a few drinks and they would start singing. And they would start crying and they would start telling you stories of their grandchildren who have gone. And, you know, the, the suffering and sadness. And I made a pretty glib remark to myself there. I said, oh, if the white fella uh, drinks to forget, these people are drinking to remember, I thought. That, that's how it appeared to me at that, this particular night. So... You know, it's a very humbling experience, my time with the Indigenous community. And I, 
I'm curious about these some qualities I can't name. And I came to the point where I thought, gee, these old girls are so much like my grandmother. <laughs> this, is hap this happens in Australia. Mm. And her whole way, I thought, what is this? And then I remember that my father used to be called, they'd say, I remember a neighbour saying, hey, Bernie, Bernard was my father's name, Bernie, you're a bit of an Aborigine, aren't you? And, and my father would say, no, I'm not. And, you know, deny it. And um, so I, I've wondered to this <laughs> day, my grandma, who was such a delight, and it's where I learned to draw the teapot by sitting at her table just staring at it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've wondered whether there's some affinity there or whether any person growing up in white Australia would go amongst those people and be very impressed. And when I found mm. out that, mm. that uh, Uluru um, statement mm. had been rejected, mm. I thought, why reject it? It could be such a blessing. Uh, because I've, I don't know, I don't want to romanticise people, but I found those qualities in the Indigenous people generally and which I really like, which I really like in spite of troubles. Uh, it's something unique and distinctive. Well, there's which incredible... Which is probably... I'll, I'll yeah. just finish that yeah. because I just thought of it. That which I think have been imparted... In, if, if indeed there is an Australian sense of humour, mm. uh, it's my theory that... A lot of it has come across in the early days mm. when the interface between uh, the whites and the indigenous was not with the big well-financed search parties like Burke and Wills, it was with the mavericks who were the bird mm. trappers, the gold prospectors who went into the centre and needed to connect to the indigenous people to get through that country because it's so hard and you had to know where the water was. And I think there must have been a great influence came across. I think you're absolutely right with yeah, that. Yeah, and I think yeah. we carry it more than we understand. Mm. And I think to see the value of it and the beauty of it mm. and the uniqueness and the spirit of it would be very wise in any government move which could bring it in, not because it's the right thing to do, because it's a good, you know, it's a valuable thing to do. It, it, it's mm. a blessing mm. to us. Mm. Not because we're being good to these people, but because we, we want something yeah, of the wisdom. Mm. And, it, and, and I really believe in it. So that's the tragedy of this rejection of, say, the uh, Uluru Statement. Try it. It might do us the world of good eventually. Who knows? But it, would <laughs> it would probably um, take a kind of um, uh, naivety or innocence that um, our politics is bereft of at the moment. Um, I, I think, think you're, I think right. you're quite right, it's what we need, but I think we're a long way from knowing even how to begin to, to do well, it. Well, that's right, and you say it, because I think we have lost that innocence, that mature innocence, the capacity to be open and genuine, like... It's also tough and cynical and hard and mm. strategic that you just shut off a whole lot of brilliant possibilities because you can't see them anymore when you're in this this desperate combative mode mm. which is so tangled and twisted. And so that is afflicting our politics. And if even to say the word innocence in any proximity to the Parliament House, they just laugh, you know. It's <laughs> uh, laughter, because they don't understand what innocence means. They, they, people think it's about being a fool and being... Um, it's a divine state. It's a divine... It's, it's the divine within us, I, I believe. And it's there, and it's possible, and it resides in us, covered up. And, but who dares to act upon it or to speak from it or or listen to it in other and who dares have it certainly not the political system i'm aware we're getting to the point of um people asking questions should we go there now um, i was just going to get yeah, i guess all right we go for it. <laughs> no just one comment i wanted to yes. make and this sort of brings us back to winnicott is that all through this book are the little references to um 
uh, you know, ordinary days where nothing remarkable is going to happen, and um, you know that there isn't going to be a celebration, and you and, and um, or people that get sort of arrested for not going to um, a public event, mm. and um, mm. so you clearly have have a bit of a bee in your bonnet too about the uh, number of compulsory celebrations. Well, it's all overblown. <laughs> I think I think we're suffering from too much of everything. I mean, it's hard <laughs> to reduce and come back, yeah, but. Yeah. Every day is International Kindness <laughs> Day or Internationalist Day. There's always something you think, oh, please leave me alone. I want to just <laughs> sit and look out the window or something. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah, much yeah, coming at us yeah, all the time, yeah, and I think yeah. it's crazy. We're, they don't want us to be sane. They don't want to, who, who they are, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a funny <laughs> dynamic that's, that's built right, yeah. up. It's like a kind of a ferment that's taken hold of us. Too much, too much of everything. <laughs> Shall we move to question time then? Oh, <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, we do have some microphones, so just pop your hand up if you have a question. Um, and wait for the microphone. Gosh, oh, there's one, two. Uh, look, it's been uh, great listening to your tales and that, and I'm particularly interested um, in your like or dislike of Anzac Day and, uh, um, and those days that you don't particularly like to commemorate. Growing up as a child, um, it was the big day. Nowadays, where some people say we seem to um, uh, be glorifying the wars or war, every day of the year we have we have a commemoration for something. Do you think you'd be able to, using your creati creativity, one year to get the powers that be to cease that and we have a commemoration each day for maybe trees or sunsets or <laughs> ducks? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, I don't think I'd have a hope. Um, I think it's all off and running now, isn't it? Look. Uh, when I say I have a difficult time at Anzac Day, I grew up with Anzac Day. My headmaster was, an, was a Gallipoli veteran, Mr Golding. I used to watch him. He was burnt and he was, went to France and was, uh, you know, hurt with gas, mustard gas. And I, I remember once going to the, being sent to his office with a note from the teacher. And there he was bandaging, he had a long bandage hanging from his hand and he was slowly winding it over because he had these wounds from the gas on his hand. And he, he said, wait a minute, boy, I'll be with you in a moment. And I watched him as he wound this bandage. And I thought, oh, I've seen a Gallipoli veteran dressing his wounds. Yeah. So I have a respect, of course, for all the men and women and families who were affected mm. by this gross cruelty and you know, monstrosity that was war, of course. And I grew up with so many war refugees. I won't drag this out, but it was a big part of my background that I grew up with so many Russians, Poles, it, people from all over Europe um, who had the most horrible wars. And I heard the tales. My family had people in the First World War and the Second World War and died and all this sort of thing. So I don't dismiss this thing. It's just I think we, we commemorate it very poorly and it's become some other sort of thing. There's no genuine solemnity about the vast resounding consequences. Um, and I, I, it's just mishandled, I think, and it's fallen into a sort of a theatre of the... Uh, it's ridiculous. It dis it's a disservice to the you know, to all that happened. And it doesn't... It, it, it sort of seems to foster the next war just a little bit and the idea of heroic violence and stuff. Mm. So I, I, I do my best for the trees, and people are pretty good at looking after and caring for trees too. But I don't think there's much profit in it, or for power or something for governments. And I, I, I hope we grow through this thing as we mature and mature. Maybe, maybe it's who will know. So I'm not sure whether I'm answering that question, but go on. Lady in the green. <coughs> uh, hi, Michael. I just want to say thank you so much for all you are and do in the world. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, how do you keep on sharing your big open heart with the world 
even when you just get massive amounts of shit thrown at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, how do I keep on caring uh, when I get a lot of stuff thrown at me? And I have. I've had a lot. I'm getting a bit lately too. But, um, uh, well, I try and care as much as I can. I'm not a saint, you know. I, I think... Look, who doesn't care? I think she said sharing. Sharing? Yeah, how do you keep sharing? Oh, that? how do you keep yeah. sharing? Oh, mm -hmm. sharing and caring. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sharing. Uh, look, it's a compulsion, is it not? What does the artist do? There's, I suppose there's a kind of... Would you say there's, an art, there's a sort of an artistic uh, uh, kind of archetype as a person who wants to create and to express... Uh, an interesting one I've heard, I've probably said it here before, that the artist's work is to express what is repressed, to express what is repressed and find what is repressed. And what is repressed can be painful or it can be joyous too. We often repress our beautiful qualities. So, so it's a, that is a compulsion to express it. You, 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 and as a boy, I remember thinking, oh, I feel this. Does that person over there feel that? I wonder. I wonder what it's like to be someone else. You know, what's it like to be another, that other person there? Uh, do they feel what I feel? I see the dead bird on the road and I'm sad. Does the other person think that? So this is eternal human curiosity and a lot of good things come of that, empathetic curiosity. And so that's partly why I share because I was always doing it as a child. And I see the value of it that we all share our experience without becoming too boring about it. But, but you know, that we, if, we, if our heart is aching, can we tell someone or find when someone else's heart is aching? Can we cry with our friends, um, etc.? And I, I wondered why so many people were not allowed to cry or felt it was really good to keep a stiff upper lip at a funeral and I wondered why can't you cry, etc. All that sort of thing, and um, why are we so repressed about our divinity? We don't just repress our demons, we repress our angels too. So, I don't know why, but that's probably something on... <laughs> Two questions down here. Yeah. How, how do you reconcile your, out, your outlook with um, sort of this... Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest and probably most vicious and nastiest. What was that last bit? The, uh, the survival, survival of, the of the fittest. I could say of, of the nastiest or the most egocentric or whatever you like to call it. Yes. How, how do I sort of deal with it? Reconcile this the yeah. sort of meat inheriting the earth against what seems to happen in nature. Yes. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, every day I wonder about Simla and, and um, the meek... Um, the meek... Meekness is a beautiful quality sometimes too. I, I, you know, the heroics of the modern day I have no time for. The, the, the <coughs> sort of the bombast and the, the sort of... It's a tragedy, you know. Life's a tragedy. Two, it's a joy. It's both. I, I, I think that to see power dominating and be so well-armed and so ruthless and so beastly, uh, it, it, we live in this world and um, how, how do we bear it? How do we deal with it. Who's got the answer? There have been many, many prophets and uh, people in history who've spoken to this all the time, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor of spirit, for they shall know God, and all this sort of thing. And, and it is a, a very interesting fact that people who don't have power, who don't have wealth, who don't uh, have success who have failure and loss and grief somehow have something else as well. I mean, this is Taoism, isn't it? This is Lao Tzu. It's, um, 
there's a there is a divinity in suffering, and not, not that one wants to encourage it or to bring it about, but the world is full of uh, suffering. And uh, uh, it struck me as a child how people in their sadness will seem more beautiful than people in all their triumphalism and their pleasure-seeking. And I, so it's, a, it's an ironic thing in human, nat in human history and in human behaviour that, that people in their sorrows, in their sufferings, in their losses are often kind of have a profound dignity and in them and that wealth does not and power does not buy that or guarantee that and then you say well what is worth having what is this life you know it's an existential question what what are we doing here um, what is worth having or or being or a big question and how how do we how do we end up how do we die how does an artist create and whether or how do you create a garden or a family or a relationship all creative stuff and and, and what is required money no not that is power so it just depends what do we want what what are we here for it's, that's what a child says Maybe, what what maybe, is this? What is it, they say? Yeah, maybe that inability to reconcile and the constant attempt to reconcile the irreconcilable is, is what fuels the creative process. There's a tension yeah. there yeah. in that of, mm. of, 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 of saying, what's going on? And I think it's an old, uh, it's a sort of a Buddhist question, is it not to say, what is this? Whatever it is, you know, what is this? And this opening of the mind and just seeing it, feeling it. And I think to keep on doing that is quite a... That's mature innocence also. And there's such depth and richness eventually in that. I think that's a life worth living to some degree. And I, I don't say that from a position of comfort. My life hasn't been so comfortable, particularly in recent years. And um, I... I but I wouldn't have it any other way. Who would? Mm. Who would have their life any other way? I suppose we've all got reason to <laughs> right. want a holiday. <laughs> we have a gentleman in the middle here whose arm must be about to fall off. Yeah, I <laughs> see that arm. <laughs> Can we pass the microphone <laughs> in to him? I oh, thank you we for have, your oh, Sorry, we have someone at the front. <laughs> um. Where is the microphone? Oh, yes, it's here. Michael. Yes. That's all right. Oh, no, no, Excuse sorry. I was, I was reassuring the man up the yeah. back that there will be another. We will come back things. to you, sir. I, I'd just like to say, keep doing what you're doing, but I, I want to know what sort of shit do you get um, and who's giving it to you? <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do about it? Well, where do they live? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, it's all, it's always been the case. I mean, um, oh, hang on, how can I say this? Uh, look, there's the fact of, um, there's, there's so many levels of shit, if you like, that come <laughs> at you. Yeah, I, I've been in court a number of times for obscenity when I was younger. That's when it was still possible to be charged with obscenity. And this is back in the 60s when it was our purpose to sort of confront the prudery hypocrisy thing and, and mm. try to open up and so it's opened up so wide that I think, oh God, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I had that. So when you're in trouble with the law, that's a feeling, then I've uh, uh, offended uh, religious sensibilities and you can underestimate that. And I, I might say that the offences I've caused pretty much have been, I've been, I hadn't realised that I was offending. I thought I was saying a good thing. I thought I was making a nice point and, a, and, a, and wow, no, the sky falls in. Uh, so, and you get, like, hate mail is not a happy thing when you get it sustained. There are certain political questions in this world which if you go near them, you watch out. 
And then I've had the death threat thing, and I don't know how seriously to take it, but it sort of unnerves you, goes into your unconscious, and it, it's there. It got to so bad at one point during the time of the Iraq war. <coughs> if you oppose militarism, you awake, awaken some dark uh, instincts which lie latent in times of peace. When the flags are flying, the drums are beating, people become very bold and become very uh, sort of menacing. And, uh, and so they do get at you and there are threats made and... Uh, and then you offend, you know, gen gender politics. You can easily stumble into a, a thing, any sort of politics, any sort of politics, where, you know, uh, identity politics. You can offend people. We're living in a time of offence. People get triggered, as they say, and reactive and quick to judge and to punish. And you see it in social media. There's a kind of that troll sort of thing. And I think, what is all this acrimony? What's a hostility? What is this anger in society? And I think, well, I think I know where it stems from a lot. I mean, the pace of life. You only have to drive to work, uh, as many people do, through traffic, you know, 360 days a week uh, of the year, through horrific traffic and the, you know, it's hard going and people build up a sort of frustration, anger. Life is not conducive to peaceful tranquility. And in some, and then they're going through personal troubles and frustrations. We live in a world like that. And so uh, you've got to have someone to take it out on sometimes. <laughs> people get very energised with anger. It's mm. their last source of energy left to them sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, I've had a lot of that. I've had a lot of it. And, and uh, hostility, and it comes and goes, and that's sort of... And then there's intellectual snobbery, you know. Um, oh, you're just drew t you draw cute ducks, don't you? Why don't you d address the real issues? And you, Mr. Cutie, or, you know, something you do, Mr. Curly, and uh, sort of... And, and that is envy. Envy is everywhere. You, you don't have to be brilliant to be brilliant to be envied. You, you only just have to smile, and someone will envy you. <laughs> you, you. As they say, if you're happy, don't don't wear it too much on your on your sleeve. Someone will not like you for it. And that is true. That is true. And um, but look, mostly these people are lovely too. I've been in a position that through my work I have been able to enter into people's to get an insight into how people feel and how they live and how they suffer, how they die, how they... Uh, it's, it's been a great... Ins my work has provided me a, a lot of, um, you know, access to people's realities, which otherwise are not seen. So that's lovely. So that makes all all the nasty stuff, very bearable. It, it outweighs the nasty stuff by a big margin. And okay, we can <laughs> probably, sorry to interrupt, one last question from the gentleman in the middle with the microphone, but then upstairs you will get a chance arm. to speak with. Yes, <laughs> well, yes. the man with one arm. <laughs> Quack. <laughs> yes. You've given us a beautiful uh, hour um, reminding oh. us that we must look for our innocence but how do you do that? You don't come over as a meek person. You come <laughs> over as a very brave person, prepared to retain your innocence against the flood of, uh, of human thought uh, in the modern age. How do you do that? How do you fight against it and say, I'm going to stay the way I am? Well, if that is the case, and thank you for that um, impression you have of me. Um, well, for a start, I didn't have a university degree, right? Or an education uh, worth speaking about. So I had to have some other resource. I mean, <laughs> it's foolhardiness too. I, I mean, it's like do or die. I, I don't have much to fall back on except my interior self and my, um, I thought I've got to live with it, uh, from this. 
and um, I had no precedent. There were no artists in my family. There were no educated people. There were no... Um, they were just... So that's fantastic. You've got nothing looming over you. You can... <laughs> the world is your oyster, you know. It, I, I mean, I mean that. It, it was a humble background. I wouldn't have called it so then, but now I look back and I think, yeah, that was unusual. I thought that was my normality. Uh, and and it, it wasn't much to live up to. Oh, no, I don't... That's, that's come out wrong. I, I really admired the people I grew up around, but I didn't have to prove some damn thing, you know. My father wasn't a brilliant surgeon. He said he was a beef surgeon, actually, <laughs> just for a joke. And <laughs> he wasn't a brilliant surgeon. And it's something like this. I didn't have to go off to a good school. Get it. So I had to make do, a great Australian tradition. You have to sort of work with what you've got. And, uh, and if it's bravery, maybe that is, uh, that is just what you have to muster to to stand up and uh, be a lone voice. And I, I don't think that's heroic, I think, or anything like that. Oh, if I didn't grow up with a model of that, oh, I want to be this guy who talks and that, it just seems a natural consequence of a boy in a schoolyard who says a stupid thing and gets the strap for it, you know. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's similar, that it's natural to do this, to want to speak to your society. Shouldn't everyone want to speak to their society? Um, and why, it's not like, why do I, but why don't other people, well, other people do, actually, and they do it in a more constructive and orderly way. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, this is the only way I could do it. I didn't inherit the skills of knowing how to have a good life from my father. He didn't say, oh, you invest your money here, you do that, you do... I didn't learn any of that. And I, I just had to make do, and I'm now paying the price. <laughs> I, I, I was sitting, having a coffee in the, you know, central uh, CBD of Sydney, and there's around me all these business guys sitting having coffees, and they've got their computers, and they're exchanging documents, and, and they're talking there and dressed in lovely suits and everything. And I thought, I didn't learn any of this. How do they do it? And they've probably got all these investments and stuff happening. And I thought, my father didn't tell me this stuff. <laughs> he told me how to sharpen the knife or something that's of no use to anybody much these days. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like, um, you don't know a man till he's been your boss. And those, those are the wisdoms he passed on to me, etc., etc. Heaps. Fantastic education in those things, but I don't know whether they've served me well. <laughs> But I don't know whether that answers your question, but we all have to be brave. As a dear old friend of mine, John Hepworth, a writer, used to say, be brave, comrades, life is joyous. And I've always kept that in my mind. It's a very positive view, and you might as well be brave. I have a shot at it, but deep down, we're all pretty frightened. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, and that's what courage is, isn't it? Yeah. When you know how bad it couldn't be and how dangerous it is if you can still stand up. That's courage. Mm. Righto. I knew it would be difficult for us to stop, but I think we're going to have to um, down here anyway. Um, I'd like to enjoy, uh, invite you all to come upstairs to the foyer for some refreshments. Um, we have learnt our lesson uh, from the uh, 20 years ago where we had a book signing with Michael. Michael has actually already signed some uh, of his um, books and they are actually on um, sale upstairs in the bookshop right now with a 10% discount. So, um, uh, and Michael, of course, will be available to have a chat with you upstairs when you come up to have a drink as well. Um, thank you very much, Kim and Michael. Thank you.